in our series in the book of Galatians, and if you haven't been here up to this point, that's okay. We're going to catch you up a little bit here. Uh, we want to say welcome. My name is Chris. I have the privilege to be the lead pastor here. I look forward to meeting you at the close of the service today. I think about what we just observed with Alive and the leaders in Alive, and, and they come out here and they, they kind of make fools of themselves at times and do fun things, but that is an expression of love for the teens, and I'm just so grateful for that. And we see that with, uh, with Alive. We see that with TruthQuest even as they're getting ready for VBS in a couple of weeks. And church, can we just acknowledge we are served so well through these ministries as they seek to serve the generation to come in the church to the Lord Terry. And I'm just so grateful for those that give their life to that. Well, in Galatians, we are looking at what it means to have a new identity, to be transformed into the children of God. And today, as we dive into this book, as we look at the end of this chapter 3 and at the beginning of uh, chapter 4 all the way through verse 7, we're going we're gonna to look at something that we've kind of looked at from a few different angles up to this point, and we're going to look at the doctrine of justification. But, but in Galatians 1, just to make sure that we're kind of all on the same page coming into this, we see that God's pleasure in us is not based on our performance for Him. Now, right off the bat, that's good news for us. Our performance is not what God finds his pleasure in. No, it's actually Christ's performance on our behalf. We're not working to earn God's favor. And then in Galatians 2, we learn that if we do trust in him and we follow Christ, that our lives are going to reflect his teachings as we're more and more conformed into his image. And so with that in mind, if you would, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 15 together. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and it does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 
For as many of you were, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for how it brings life, how it shines light into darkness. And this morning we pray that we would understand and receive your word together. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, as we begin in Galatians chapter 3, we realize that Paul's giving us a very succinct and yet expansive history lesson. He's going to cover 2,000 years of Old Testament history. I don't know about a lot of your history teachers, but none of mine ever covered 2,000 years quite that quickly. And I think he's doing that to kind of give us a couple of pictures, a couple of vistas along the way, some, some places where we can kind of take this scenic overlook of what's happening in the big picture of redemptive history. In other words, how it is that God is redeeming his people and defining the relationship with them and calling them and drawing them to himself and actually stripping them bare of any ability to say, look what I've done, and actually only make a claim on, look what God has done. He's taking us through these, this history from Abraham through Moses to Christ. And I said earlier that the main doctrine that we've seen thus far is the doctrine of justification. And justification can be very simply defined this way. It is the gracious act of God by which he declares a sinner righteous. In other words, right standing in the holy presence of God. God who sits there as the one who created all things for himself, for his pleasure, for his glory. In light of his holiness, that is his completely being other. He creates us for his glory and yet because of our sin we cannot be in his presence. And God as the one who is the holy and righteous judge says, because of my son's work, you can be in my presence. It's a legal declaration. It's one of those things that you can just spend hours looking at and thinking upon and just begin to plumb the depths of how wonderful and how gracious our God is that he would justify us through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. It would secure something for us. But Paul is using an illustration of something that is still a covenant it's still a pact. It's still something that's entered into from a legal standpoint, but it's, it's not necessarily the covenant that we typically think of. He begins to use language of covenant, not in marriage, not just in a covenant with God, but he actually uses a will, something that we might think of today in our, in our legal system, a will, a trust, things that are set up in ways that we can understand. Typically in the church, even we talk about the covenant of marriage. It's a lasting and binding agreement. But Paul kind of turns that illustration a little bit. He says, let's consider it this way. Let's consider it as if it were a will. Let's consider it as if it was something that was put into place, and then only when there are adjustments made is there any ability to look at that any differently than the last version. Now, I don't know about you, but I enjoy movies about families fighting over wills. I don't want to be in a family that fights over wills, but I enjoy watching them for entertainment. Perhaps some of you have walked through those types of moments in life and you realize how much can be revealed in those moments when you're divvying up property and assets and different things like that. 
what we often refer to as an inheritance. As families begin to divvy up inheritance, hearts can be revealed, can't they? And it might be entertaining to watch that on a movie, but it's difficult, tragic often to walk through that in real life. And Paul is using the will as an illustration to point to this truth that if you give something because of what I've promised, it's not because of your performance. In other words, if there's just in this will, this declaration that you will receive this, that's a promise not based on performance. The promise is given to Abraham that he's going to be made into a great nation. That's the promise of the covenant and the pact that God has made with Abraham. And Paul references Moses in this 430-year span, in this 2,000 years that's represented in history, as he points to Christ. And what is he saying there? Is he saying that something's been ratified in God's will? Did God kind of look in 430 years realize, I meant to tell them to do something to earn that? Let me give them my law. I'm, I'm, I'm going to adjust, I'm going to ratify this agreement. I've changed my mind. God doesn't do that, does he? No, God is, he was, and he evermore will be. He is unchanging. So how is it that we are supposed to interact with the law? How, how is it that we're supposed to not just see this as something that just makes this legal declaration and then we're standing there in the court as if we have nowhere to turn, nowhere to go now, and it's like, you've been declared righteous. Have a great day. Imagine how lonely and abandoned that would feel. Imagine how that, the sense would be of like, this is wonderful news. Now what? It is good news that we're justified. It is good news that we are declared legally righteous in the presence of a holy God. But that is not all that is declared through the scriptures to us as his people. That is not all that is given to us. See, if I give you something because of what I've promised, it's not because of your performance. But if I put some performative statements in there, if I say, you do this and then you can receive this. If I give you something because of what you've done, then it's not because of my promise anymore. And that's the, the, the needle that, that Paul is threading here with these truths. And he actually is threading that needle because he wants us to, to connect two truths together. He wants us to see that justification, while wonderful, is not everything that there is in this new identity that we have. I want you to hear that again. Justification is not everything that we have in our new identity. That's what Paul is bringing these two truths together. They almost seem counterintuitive. They seem counter to one another. And yet Paul is saying, no, bring these two truths together and look at how marvelous this is. You are justified, yes. But you are also adopted. J.I. Packer says it this way, such was God's promise. It was free, it was unconditional. As we might say, there were no strings attached. There were no works to do, no laws to obey, no merit to establish, no conditions to fulfill. God simply said, I will give you a seed. And to your seed, I will give the land. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Packer continues, his promise was like a will, freely giving the inheritance to a future generation. 
And like a human will, this divine promise is unalterable. It's still in force today. It's never been rescinded. God does not make a promise in order to break it. He has never, never annulled or modified his will. That's good news. Those promises that we can receive, they're still available to us today. This rich inheritance as co-heirs with Christ, as we're going to see in just a moment, is still available to us today. It has not been annulled. It's not been rescinded. It's not been changed or altered in any way. God is unchanging and he is faithful and his nature shines through in this moment. Even as we are changed, his nature is revealed in the midst of that. His heart toward us as his people. But as we come to this place, we we almost get to the central question of the Christian faith. What is the relationship between the believer and the law of God? What is it that the law of God does? And Paul is going to use two metaphors to characterize the way that the law works in a Christian's life. He says that it is a guard. It's a guard. In verse 23, it says, Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So it is a guard to us. It's also a tutor. It's it's an instructor. It's one who gives uh, supervision over the way that we live. Verse 24 says this, the law was put in charge to lead us to ourselves, to one another, to that spouse who's failing us, to that child who's disappointing to us. No. The law is given, it's put in charge to lead us to Christ. That's what this is all leading to. Paul is indicating that we no longer have any relation to the values of the law That we don't see it as a system of salvation, but the law does show us who we really are. The law shows us who we really are, and so the law points us to see Christ as He really is, a Savior. A Savior that we need in our lives. The one who perfectly obeyed the law on our behalf, and then died in our place so that we might receive this promised blessing in our lives. And this gives us the opportunity to live with a new identity before the world around us. Before the holy God who draws us near to himself. See, it then goes on to say in verse 27 that we are baptized into Christ. Notice that Paul uses this language. He's he's giving us a picture when we have baptism. It is a picture of immersion into the life of Christ. It's completely saturating. It's something that we are immersed into. We, We dive deep into it. And we are baptized into Christ. We are immersed into this life. And then Paul goes on to say that we are then clothed with Christ. So in baptism, in baptism, we are initiated, we're crowned, we're killed as we put this old life to death. We are embraced, we are chosen, we are washed, we are adopted, we are gifted, we are reborn. And then we are sent forth because we are redeemed. All you thought was you were maybe signing up to get a free t-shirt. But it is so much more because we don't give free t-shirts i've tried 
No, we are identified as one of God's own, and we are declaring it to those around us. We're declaring it with our very lives and the sacrament in the church. We, we associate with the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It, it models justification. It models what it is that Christ does for us. But baptism doesn't save us. Christ does that. Baptism doesn't save us. Christ does that. And then, then going on in this imagery, Paul speaks of, in verse 27 of chapter 3 in Galatians, he speaks of putting on Christ like a garment. I see that most of you are dressed today. Thank you. You had to, to put something on. So in baptism, there's something that is happening that there's something being put off. There's this old life being put off. We are baptized. We, we associate with his death. We declare that our lives are no longer the same. But now we're going to put something on. We belong to Christ, and we put him on like a garment. You see, Paul's making a connection, continuing with this illustration of the will. He's making a connection to something that happens in Roman society. When a youth comes of age, he was given special toga, which admitted him to the full rights of the family. I remember a time years ago when our oldest son was, was ready to get his driver's license, and he was kind of acknowledging, I'm not sure if I want to do that yet, and, and our middle child, Alec, he kind of stepped up and he said, I'll take it for him, Dad. That's Alec, if you, if you don't know him. He's not here today, so I'm sharing an unauthorized illustration to make sure he listens later to know what this sermon was about. I'll take it, Dad. And I said, son, it's not like they divvy them out to us as a family and just I get to choose who gets to take that. There's things that have happened in Caleb's life to prepare him for this moment, right? And so this is similar to what's happening here. They put on this garment and it says, you know what? That's not just a Jesse. He has the full rights of that household. Poor kid. That's not just a Jesse. He's one that has say over the affairs of that household. He's one that has full access to the rights of that family. This is a grown-up son. And so we, with the Galatians, we put off the old garments of the law, and we put on Christ's robe of righteousness. What does that do? It shows that we are now with Christ, and we have the full access to the inheritance that is available to us. In other words... We're not just standing in the courtroom alone anymore wondering what's next. We're clothed in righteousness. And then in addition to being baptized into Christ, in addition to being clothed with Christ and united with Christ, we each belong to Christ. In chapter 3, verse 29, Paul says this, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And here Paul is taking the unity and ties it to the Old Testament line of saints. You ever wonder where you stand in redemptive history? Right here, Paul is making the connection for you. As he threads these truths together, and he begins to pull them together, and he says, look at what God is doing. He justifies you. He calls you to be his own. He clothes you. He baptizes you. He unites with you. And you are now united with Christ. There's, this is this new identity that we have. There is now blessing that we receive, but more than that, there is intimacy that we have 
with God himself. We are declared righteous. And we enjoy intimacy with the judge himself. What a picture. The law levels the playing field. You know what the law best does? It shows us that we all need a Savior. And it levels the playing field. And that's why Paul's going to go on. He's going to say, hey, listen, there, there is no race, social standing, gender. Each one of these groups is equally loved and valued by God because the gospel welcomes everyone because everyone needs a Savior. He's not saying that these distinctions don't exist, but Christ abolishes the distinctions. Not because they don't exist, because they don't matter. He's saying, I'm actually forming you into a new race, a new nation. And this is the promise that we have in salvation. It's something that every follower of Christ needs to understand. We need to understand the biblical doctrine, the truth of justification. But we also need to understand that justification is not the end of the gospel. In fact, it may not even be the greatest truth of the gospel. To Packer again, in his book, Knowing God, he says it this way, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. This may cause a raising of eyebrows, for justification is the gift of God on which, since Luther, evangelicals have laid the greatest stress. And we are accustomed to say, almost without thinking, that free justification is God's supreme blessing to us as sinners. Nonetheless, careful thought will show the truth of the statement that we have just made, that adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Justification, we are right before God the judge. Adoption, we are loved by God the Father. Imagine the scene. In the courtroom, the picture is legal. Everything is stoic, stark. We stand before the judge who makes a pronouncement in Christ, not guilty. And then in adoption, the judge not only declares you not guilty, but he gets up off the bench. He comes down to where you are. He takes the chains off of you. And he says, come home with me as my son. That sounds like a great day in court to me. I've never had a day in court. I'm not looking for one. But that sounds like a great day in court to me. And imagine it in the heavens before the one who created them. The chains are gone. Come home as my son. Galatians 3.26 is like this summary statement of everything that we've seen up to this point in the book of Galatians. Read it with me. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And we should take note that Paul does not say that we are sons and daughters or children here. Paul purposely uses this phrase, son. This is not Paul being chauvinistic. 
We see in Isaiah 43, 6 that God refers to his people as sons and daughters. In Ezekiel 16, 21, that we are called children of God. But in light of Galatians, what we're going to see in, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul is contrasting sons with children. And understanding what's going on here is important for us to understand the significance of our sonship. In our adoption, our sonship. See, Jesus is uniquely and exclusively the Son of God. He is the one who is equal with the Father for all of eternity. And Jesus is this seed that is referenced in chapter 3, verse 19. That seed gets all of the promises that were coming to Abraham. Then anyone who belongs to Christ through faith automatically becomes an heir of the promises of Abraham. And this is where God is knitting together his people as this new nation, this new race that are called together, this royal priesthood who are called together to be a representation of his name to the world that is watching around us. It's important when we study the truths of God that we don't put them in such distinct silos that we lack to be amazed at what God is actually doing and forming us as his people. We have to see how these things work together because they're going to minister to us in moments of great need. This morning as we're singing in worship, do you have this sense that you are far off from God, that that God does not see you as acceptable to Him? This is where the doctrine of justification becomes one of those things where you just go, because of Christ, I am saved, I am justified, I am declared righteous. Did you come into worship this morning with this sense of God feels far off? The judge has stepped off of his throne. He has walked down to you. He has taken off the chains. He has clothed you and he said, let's go home. See, it ministers to us in moments of our lives when it feels like nothing in the world will do. Do you know why? Because nothing in the world will do. This is divine intervention on your behalf. This is divine sonship, and nothing in the world can break it. No height, no depth, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Glorious truth. This is what makes Paul's declaration that we are sons of God, his children, such an amazing Impressive declaration. John 1.12 says it this way, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So what is the only way to receive this relationship? What is the only way to get into this relationship? It is faith. Paul uses the phrase in Christ 172 times throughout the Gospels. He uses that phrase because this participation in and union with Jesus Christ through faith is the only way to be in this relationship. And here's the truth. A false gospel, remember that's part of what Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians for. A false gospel is going to rob you of salvation and your membership in the family of God. This new identity that we have is magnificent. It's marvelous to us. It's one of those things that in this world we can begin to have such a difficult time to wrap our mind around. And I think that that's why Paul uses a will here rather than any other type of covenant to help us understand the richness and the blessing of this inheritance that we are brought into as sons of God. 
Let's continue to read in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul continues this illustration of what happens when someone receives the full rights of a son in adoption. Not just clothed, not just walking around with this air about us. He begins to use it to describe what God is going to do in our lives by grace through faith in Christ. He helps us to see that we have been adopted Adoption into God's family is one of the positive benefits. It's one of the blessings of justification. Not only are we pardoned from judgment against us through justification, but we also experience this change of identity. We become children of God through adoption. Our relationship with God, which was once lost through the fall, is now restored. Receiving all of the benefits of becoming an heir of God and a co-heir. With Christ. This is what Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 17 attests to. I was thinking about the subject of adoption. And I realized that there, there's much in the news today about adoption and the great need for it in our own country, throughout the world. I've seen you as a church in so many different ways, many family that would seek to participate in foster care. A part of that, that sense that we are for life. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for how the Lord has laid on the hearts of some here in this church to, to even seek the path of adoption. My own family has been affected by this. I have a niece that I've never met through adoption. And I have a new nephew because of adoption. Adoption is a marvelous thing. I don't know what our family would be like without those who have been adopted into it be missing something it wouldn't feel as full and as wonderful as it does our family adoption is not a process that you just kind of wake up one morning and think we should adopt a child today i can imagine how stephanie would respond to that it's not that it, her heart is in some awful place that's just not something you enter into lightly as if it were on a whim. And here's where we begin to understand the intentionality of the use of this language. It's not as if God just says, fine, let him into the family. I mean, there's plenty. No, this is actually God's intention all along to make you his people. His tribe, his race. His nation is the word that's used with Abraham and the promises that are given to him. In other words, God's not altering the contract. He's defining how it is that he is being intentional to save us to be his people, to be adopted into his family. 
I mean, if you're going to adopt a child today, think about the intentionality that was required. There's a financial responsibility that is off the charts for some. I've seen so many GoFundMes that are helping with this, and you just realize that number seems insurmountable. But there's an intentionality and a planning that is required. There is a cost to adoption. And you know what is true in our faith? There was a cost for adoption as well through the cross of Jesus Christ. You're expensive, church. You cost God his only son. That's what bought your adoption. There's an intentionality to it. There are home studies that have to happen. People coming into your home, evaluating not just your finances and your ability to fundraise, but your ability to actually interact with one another in a healthy way. A healthy home life. So you have to get your home in order. But adoption requires someone to come at just the right time. You know what scripture attests to? That when Jesus came, it was just the right time. It was the right time theologically, religiously, culturally, politically. It was the right time. Do you know why we know that? Because scripture says at the right time, Christ came. Don't overthink it. His adoption of us is intentional. But it requires somebody to have the right qualifications. We're talking about home study. Like if you walk into the home and you're just like, I don't think so. We, we have people in our church who are part of these types of home studies. And they have to go in and they're, what are they doing? They're evaluating the qualification of the individuals to receive a child into their home and to care for them. Jesus has the right qualifications for your adoption. Consider just a few. He's truly divine. He's truly human and fully righteous. Pretty good set of qualifications. Pretty intentional part of his adoption. But adoption requires someone who has the right resolve. It's not like you adopt someone accidentally. Where did this child come from? What a frightening morning around Saturday breakfast. There's more of them. No, you don't accidentally adopt somebody. God chose you. Just sit there for just a second. God chose you. He was intentional. There was a resolve. Jesus' death was no accident. It was the intentional plan of God for our redemption. Consider Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, where it says this, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and his will. Praise God there was nothing in me or you that drew us to him. When we look at the cross, we see this picture of what it cost for our redemption. It may seem like an exaggeration to say that there was nothing in us that drew us to him. But if there was 
something in us, why would he have to die? See, what that contrast shows is the great cost of the law. It does strip us bare in a vulnerable state, and yet he clothes us and he welcomes us home. The cross shows us the intentionality. The cross shows us the great cost. The cross shows us why it is that everything offensive in us required his death. Jesus determined to redeem us. And he died to rescue us. Praise God for his resolve. Praise God for his faithfulness when I feel unfaithful. Praise God for those moments where he ministers so perfectly. God sent his spirit then so that we might experience the privilege of this sonship. You know, the people of God were rightly in awe. They were rightly frightened at the prospect of approaching God under the law in the Old Testament. And rightfully so. They, this, is, this is now the privilege of every single person who is united to Christ to be able to confidently draw near to the presence of God. To confidently draw near to the throne of grace. You and I approach the same God, the same God of Exodus 19, and we do so with boldness and confident access through faith in Him, as it says in Ephesians 3.12. And not only do we have confidence, but we also have intimacy. We can cry out, Abba, Father! You know, maybe the word Abba gets misunderstood or maybe even over-sentimentalized. It's just a word that simply means daddy, where it almost comes across as baby talk. But that's, that's not how Scripture uses this title for God. It, it's actually this groaning for our Father. It's a longing for a Father. It's Jesus in the garden crying out in Mark 14, 36. It's the same Spirit crying out in us that we read about in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Abba. Father, it's a child when scared, grabbing tight to your neck, crying out, Daddy. You know, just as I've been preparing, I had this picture of how many of us have gone into the ocean with our children for a first time. And you have that experience where they scurry up your person. Waves of life feel like they're hitting you? Scurry to Abba, Father. No matter what this world brings you, you have nothing to fear. Because you have received the spirit of sonship leading you to cry out, Abba. When you hear the news that you feared, when you get the diagnosis that is most dreaded, when you experience the circumstances you could never imagine happening, when you fall on your knees and you cry out, Abba, Father, He is there. Even in those moments, you don't have the spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You have a spirit that leads you to the one who can comfort you, 
I'll confess, Thursday night I cried a bit in my living room at the news that Dr. Tim Keller had gone into hospice. And then again in my office on Friday when I received the news that he had passed. I never met him, but it felt like losing a friend. A friend of my own soul for years. And I was reminded of this quote of his. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Think about the guardsmen outside the room of a king. They're not going to take that assignment lightly, are they? Hey, I'm thirsty. Are you? Should we wake the king? Nope. They're, they're probably going to argue over who has to go into the room for something they legitimately would need to wake him for. Do you know what a child does? Walks right past those guards. I need water! Even as we said last week at Mother's Day, why is it always 2 or 3 a.m.? But you know that's a reminder of? No matter how dark the circumstances that you're facing, this king says, ask for the water. Jesus says, and you'll thirst no more. What access we have. Not only are we declared as righteous, we are his children. Enter in. There's a sense this morning, there there were a couple of words during worship, and we we kind of set them aside for this moment. But I want to set them up in this way. Are you here today and and you've heard all about this access, but you've never experienced the first part of that, which is the declaration of righteousness, this justification, this, this declaration over you that because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you have nothing to fear in the courtroom of your eternal judge. I don't say those words to be hyperbolic. I say those words because they're biblical. They're the words that our faith has to be based on. To be a a faith in the right things. A faith in the right one. Jesus Christ himself. Are there other things that you've been trying to bring into that courtroom as this evidence that says, look, look, judge, look at all the things. He says, I can only see one thing to declare you righteous. There's only one thing that I could declare you righteous, and that's through the blood of my son. Are you here today and you've never received that declaration of justification and righteousness over your life? There is an invitation open to you today to become a co-heir. But how many of us in our relationship with God have stopped short? We've stopped there and we just go, I'm justified. Now what? We forget to go home. I remember the sound of the bell at night. I remember the sound of the, the, the street lamp clicking on that told me it was time to get home. Perhaps in your childhood you had an experience like that. The bell that rang out on the porch, the street light turning on and you realize it's time to go home. Are the circumstances that you're facing right now pointing you to go home? 
And yet you're standing there and you're saying, I know that I'm justified, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. Go home. It's where you were designed to be in the first place. That's what adoption does. It says that I can go into this comfort, this dwelling, this place where I can make home a refuge, a shelter in my time of need. It's what we see the psalmist sing about all throughout the psalms. But it's what Christ secures for us as co-heirs with him. If you would just bow your head as we prepare to receive from these prophetic words before we respond in worship this morning. Two categories. You're here. You've never received righteousness through faith. Second category. It's time to go home. Thank you.